to uh, update my Facebook status. It's about as funny as I get. Hey, um, uh, Gil, thank you, and uh, also uh, Mary, thank you for the invitation to be here um, and uh, to participate in my recovery today. Um, I'm, I'm an alcoholic. My name is Phil. Yeah. Um, I uh, was uh, talking to Gil earlier. He, he asked me uh, how long uh, it's been since my last drink, and he was trying to get to just you know a round ballpark figure. And I always like to make things a little more complicated than that, so I had to look at my uh, at my calendar, and um, I guess I'm actually one week shy of eight and a half years since my last drink. And uh, you should definitely applaud about that. I think after you hear some of my story, you might want to come back and applaud about that again, right? Um, I want to I want to tell you a little bit about my relationship with alcohol, and um, more importantly, I want to I want to share with you that um, what the good people of Alcoholics Anonymous uh, have done for me is they've uh, they've introduced me to a um, a power without limits uh, that's allowed me to live for nearly eight and a half years now since my last drink. And um, one of the um, one of the most important things I believe that uh, that I've learned in Alcoholics Anonymous, in addition to having that, or I guess maybe as a uh, function of having that relationship with this limitless power, is is, is learning how to pray. And, and and I don't know if any of you have had the same kind of experiences that I've had, but I, I grew up with some some ideas about uh, a God or a higher power um, that. Uh, that weren't very conducive to recovery. Um, and I don't know exactly where I got those ideas or wh- where I formed this image, if you will, in my mind about, about a God, but, um, you know, my parents tried awful hard. They, they took me to church. They sent me to Sunday school. They even had me enrolled in a, in a, in a private, you know, um, uh, church-based uh, uh, academy or school, Right. I think they invested a great deal of their time and, and effort and, and a lot of their money in trying to help me to develop as a young man and, and to find a relationship with the God that they knew. And um, and somehow I came away with this different idea. The the idea that uh, that I came up with is um, about this um, this power, this really I guess just this uh, this old man in the sky uh, who. Um, who had a list of all the things that I'd done wrong. And, uh, you know, as soon as he found me, he was going to punish me. And, and, and I don't, again, I don't know where I got that notion, but uh, but that notion kind of kept me running and it kept me seeking, you know, whatever pleasures I could get out of the moments that I had. And I want to tell you today that, um, that the man that stands before you today is, is not the man that I was. Uh, I'll, I'll use uh, April, uh, no, I'm sorry, I'll use February 14th of 2004. I, I, uh, I'm not the man that I was on February 14th, 2004, or, or before that date. And the reason I mentioned that date is that there was something that, that started for me that day. It was uh, really the beginning of my introduction to the, the, the process of recovery. My, um, you know, growing up, um, I had always kind of envisioned my uh, my parents and my family having a surprise birthday party for me. And, and uh, it never really happened, but then on February 14th of 2004, I had a different kind of surprise party. Um, my uh, my family showed up, and they they woke me up, and uh, they told me that they were tired of watching me kill myself. And um, 
and they each sat down and they read letters. Maybe you've seen this on TV. There's a whole show about it, you know, interventions, right? And, and so my family sat around and they, they, they all taken the time to write a letter to me to tell me about how they cared about me and how they were concerned about me. And, and they told me, they shared these things with me, and, and um, it, was, it was a cheery moment. And, you know, they caught me at, at, at a really good time because um, I had been on quite a, quite a run, and I don't know if you can relate to this, but, but um, I, I, uh, I drank and, and used other substances to, to get out of me uh, at such a pace that I, I'd gotten by that day to a place where I, I didn't know how to get off the merry-go-round I was on, and I knew I couldn't stay on the merry-go-round. And, uh, and they showed up right at the right time, and they, uh, they asked me to go get help. And you know what? I, uh, I was defeated at that moment. I was, I was truly defeated. Um, I, I agreed to, to go uh, for some treatment, and, um, and, and that was the beginning of a journey that, that's been taking place since then. Now, I, I started to tell you uh, about how um, this relationship with this higher power has been such a such a monumental change in the man that I am today. And, and one of the things that, that I've uh, learned uh, as a result of hanging around with people like you is I've, I've learned how to pray. I've learned how to have a relationship. I've learned how to, how to talk to, and, and hopefully I've learned a little bit of how to listen to uh, that, that uh, limitless power that I, I talked about. And um, if you don't mind, before I get too much farther into this, uh, I'd like to uh, share a prayer with you. And uh, if, if you have got your prayer life uh, down pat, you, you got it all worked out, then um, just, you know, be amused by me for a moment. And uh, if you're struggling to figure out how to establish that relationship with your higher power, I don't know that the way I do it is going to be the way that you might want to do it, but, but it might help you because that, that's how people help me. They showed me how they pray. So I'm going to start with that. And if you don't mind, what I'm going to do is um, I'm going to alter the prayer just a little bit. Um, I'm going to I'm going to say the prayer for all of us, if, if that's all right with you. <sighs> Heavenly Father, thank you for another sober day here on Earth. Lord, we thank you for uh, all the blessings that you've put into our lives, and we um, we ask that you would help us to see, share, and be good stewards with each and every one of those blessings. Lord, we pray that you would uh, forgive us for our selfishness and that you would help us to live in the truth and that you would... Um, Lord, we pray that you would show us the men and women that you'd have us be. Help us to become those men and women, the, the people that you made us to be, Lord. We pray that you would show us... Uh, your will for us and give us the willingness and the, and the courage to carry it out. We, we pray, Lord, for all of your children. We pray that they would find the, the joy and the peace and the love and the freedom that we've found in you. Lord, we pray that you would uh, use us to help build your kingdom here on earth. We, we pray, Lord, that you, would, um, that you would use us to help some of your kids especially when we don't want to. Pray, Lord, for healing and for uh, all those who are suffering. We pray that they would come to find peace in you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh, and please help me say some really cool stuff today. Um, 
So, so I told you my, my, my journey started uh, towards recovery started in February of 2004. That's not my sobriety date, but um, I want to tell you a little bit about my relationship with alcohol before I get back into the recovery. So um, I'm going to tell you a few things that, that maybe you can relate to. Um, one was uh, I, don't, uh, I don't believe this was my first drink, but I, I remember a very early experience with alcohol. And, and I have to kind of compare and contrast uh, some, some, you know, pre-alcohol and some uh, post-alcohol events. So, I don't know, I was, uh, I was in seventh or eighth grade, and um, it was a Friday afternoon, and um, the, school, the middle school that I went to had a, uh, a dance that night. And, man, I'll never forget how cute Cindy Rushing was. And um, she had these, um, these cute little glasses and uh, long, straight hair, and um, I had plans for Cindy Rushing. I'm not sure, you know, I wanted, to, I wanted to capture her, and I don't know what I was going to do when I caught her, but, um, but I remember being fascinated with her, and I went home uh, from school that Friday afternoon, and, um, and I was excited for this dance, and I, I, I took a shower, and I, I uh, did my hair just right, I, I think I even used some of my dad's aftershave, and, uh, oh, it's done, and um, I, uh, you know, put on the best shirt that I had, and some nice jeans, and I went to the dance, and I got there, and as I walked in, I saw Cindy and a couple of her friends, and they were kind of giggling, and I was, I was sure there was something that I had done wrong that was causing them to giggle, and you know, that what happened for me is I became overwhelmed with fear that, uh, that she might reject me if I asked her to dance, and so um, I never did ask Cindy to dance that night. I never actually did ask Cindy to dance, um, ever. And um, I would stand uh, with my back mostly against the wall watching a bunch of other classmates have a bunch of fun and, and getting, I guess today the word we use is resentful, but I was just agitated that they were having fun, that they seemed to know all the secrets of life and I didn't. And... Um, now, if I compare and contrast that to uh, a later experience, I was uh, a freshman in high school a couple years later, and uh, some of the friends that I had on a swim team were a little bit older than I was, and, and they offered to pick me up and take me to the high school dance. And, and when I got into the car, there was a, a, we called it a tall boy, right, a 16-ounce can of beer in the back seat of the car, and um, it became clear that they were drinking. And I'll tell you, I, I had had uh, a taste or two of alcohol and beer before, and I didn't really like the taste. So the only, the only thing I could figure is that the reason I asked if I could have that beer was because I wanted to be a part of what I thought they represented, you know, some kind of older, uh, upperclassman, cool kind of thing, right? I wanted to be part of them. And, and so they let me drink that beer, and I drank it down, and we went into the dance. And, um, you know, I danced with uh, girls who had boyfriends there. I, I danced with uh, so many different people, and you know the funny thing is, maybe again you can relate to this, but there was a time or two when when I'd ask a girl to dance and she'd say no, and instead of feeling crushed and rejected, you know what the reaction was? It was yeah, she doesn't know what she's missing, right? <laughs> and um, you know, I uh, for many many years I I wasn't aware uh, of, of of any sort of negative consequence of, of that evening. Um, I, I got home to my house that night. I slept in my bed. I, I didn't get sick. I didn't get in a fight. There were no hearts broken. I didn't spend any money that I didn't have. As far as I could tell on the outside, there were no consequences of my behavior that night. And um, it would only be many, many years later 
in, in reflecting on this, perhaps in inventory, that I would realize that a very tragic thing happened that night. And, and the, the tragic thing that happened was that uh, I began to believe two different lies. And I began to live my life based on believing those lies. And one of those lies was that, uh, that I liked me better when I had some alcohol in me. I felt like I was stronger, I was taller, I was smarter, I was faster. It was all the things that I was afraid that I didn't have to, to, to quite match up. And, um, and the other thing that I believed that night, the, the other lie that, that, that surfaced was that I got this idea that you liked me better when I'd had something to drink. And um, I wouldn't want to deny you. <laughs> yeah. I mean, the public service is what I'm doing. <laughs> and, yeah, you laugh. It, it is silly, isn't it? Those, those, are, those are silly things to think. But, uh, but I, I kind of adopted, I kind of embraced those those ideas as as uh, beliefs to my core. And look, I, I didn't have access to alcohol. I, I didn't drink every day from then on. I, I never became a, a guy that could drink a fifth of whiskey or anything. I'm not some big, bad drinking guy, right? But what did happen was that uh, whenever I got the opportunity to drink, I would take it. And uh, over the years, I really did not see the progression of the relationship that I had with alcohol. I didn't, I didn't see how the, the, uh, the frequency and the amount that I took was, was increasing uh, over a period of time. And many years later, I would join the Army, and, and I'd go over to Europe. And in Europe, they have, uh, they have bigger beers and stronger alcohol content beers. And, and uh, you know, it's funny. We, we, we really kind of wore it like a badge of pride to, to have a refrigerator full of beer and and to have beers every night. And I don't know how I went from having one 16-ounce beer for the first time in my life to having as many beers as I could drink before I fell asleep every night, most every night. But that's clearly a line of progression. And, and what started to happen for me, um, and, and the truth is some of these things happened, you know, in my adolescence, in my teenage years, but I would have nights where my drinking would cause me to not completely remember the events of the night before. And um, sometimes I would, uh, well, you know, the first times it happens, right, is your friend calls you the next morning and says, dude, do you remember what you said to that girl, right? And it's funny and it's cute and everybody thinks it's great. And, and, and then it becomes, you know, the next morning my friends aren't calling and they're not taking my calls. You know, and, and the things that I'm doing when I'm unaware of what I'm doing are, are starting to become more and more in contrast to my values. I'm, I'm, I'm drinking and I'm behaving in ways that are in direct contrast with my value systems. And um, over a period of time, the, the, the things that I'm forgetting are becoming greater and greater. Again, I don't know. Some of you, I think, uh, can relate to this because I've heard some of you share these stories yourself, but I'll wake up and I'm not quite sure where I'm at. And once I figure out where I'm at, I'm not sure how I got there. And then the next question becomes, oh my God, I hope, you know, there's no dents or blood or other uh, evidence on my car. And that's if I could find my car, right? And, and those things start to happen. And, and um, maybe if that's happened to you, you know the abject terror that, that we experience when, when we are 
embracing that, that reality that I don't know how I got here, and oh my God, I hope I didn't do anything that I'll regret. And, um, and so this, again, is just another indication of the progression of my relationship with alcohol. And, um, on uh, June, of, uh, June of 1998, um, by June of 1998, I'd been drinking for a couple of decades uh, or so, and um, I'm on my way to visit a friend of mine. Uh, he's, truth be told, he was married to my sister, so he was my ex-brother-in-law, but but he and I had been friends in high school, you know, for 20 years or so by now. And um, he lived out at Lake Havasu. And uh, uh, I've heard legendary stories about all the craziness that happens at Lake Havasu. And so, so the idea to go out and visit with my friend, and we're going to get a boat, and we're going to go skiing, and we're going to have a good time, is, is really appealing to me. And so I get in my car, and I'm driving out there. And I get about, I don't know if it's 100 miles from Lake Havasu or what, but, but the, uh, the billboards on the side of the road, um, are, are starting to show uh, they've got a picture of a guy in the back of a police cruiser and it looks like he's handcuffed and he looks like he's really unhappy about what's just happened and, um, and it says uh, do not operate watercraft under the influence because we're looking for you right? and, and I, and, or, or it's a bad idea and, and, and I see that sign and I think man that's good looking out because you know people should not do that <laughs> I don't know if I mentioned to you, but that's exactly why I'm going. Yeah. And um, and so I see these billboards, and I'm thinking other people shouldn't do that, but I clearly am an exception. I can handle uh, this kind of risk. And and then as I get closer to town, there's these radio ads that are coming on, and they're saying kind of the same kind of thing. And I'm, again, just kind of thinking, hey, good looking out, man. They should. That's a great public service they're doing. And when I get into town that night, my friend and I are out in the bars, and there's TV advertisements coming on. Now, see, I'm not picking up on any of this stuff, right? I'm not seeing, I'm not seeing it for how it relates to me. And the next morning, we get up and we go to the grocery store. We go there specifically to pick up the beer that we're going to consume that day. And we walk in, and as we're walking in, I get this sick feeling in my stomach. And I don't know if you've had this. It was almost like an out-of-body experience where I've got this like alter ego or this other thought or something that's that's coming across my mind and it's saying, you know what, man, this is a really bad idea. Don't do this. But see, that, that whatever it is that's having that thought is not controlling my feet. And what's controlling my feet is walking into the store and I'm walking out with the 30-pack of beer that I went there for. And then, and then I go and I rent the boat that we went to rent the boat for. And then I get on the boat and we're out driving the boat and we're open the beers because that's what I'm here for. And um, there was a lot of crazy things that happened that day. Uh, towards the end of the day, after uh, consuming enough uh, alcohol, my friend and I got this great idea that it would be fun to go water skiing. Now, I don't know if you've ever been to Lake Havasu. Uh, if, you, if you have, you might know this, but it's really not a lake at all. It's a river. And rivers aren't the best for water skiing. But on top of that, it's out in the kind of the flatland desert area, and there's high winds to kick up, especially in the afternoon. And so there were three-and-a-half-foot swells on the water. Now, again, I, I, I'm not, obviously I'm not a water skier because I didn't know that this is, this is idiocy. This is crazy. No, nobody's going to – you can't water ski in that. That's silly, right? And um, so we decide, hey, wouldn't it be fun to water ski? So I jump in the water, and he starts to pull me, and I, I, I'm just getting dragged around by the boat. So I, I got enough of this. 
So I get in the boat, and he decides he's going to do it, and I pull him up, and he's up for a minute, and then he falls, and now I've got a great idea. I got this great idea. See, what I'm going to do is uh, I'm going to come around to pick my friend up, and just before I get to him, I'm going to turn the boat, and I'm going to throw this massive wake of water at him. It's going to be hilarious, right? And uh, so I get to that place where I think it's time to turn, and I pull the wheel, and as I pull the wheel, uh, if I thought I had a six feeling in my stomach in front of that grocery store, I had nothing, because uh, I, I just knew something was dramatically wrong. And as I turned and the boat came around and I saw my friend, I saw him in the water there, and um, there was a, uh, a small uh, circle of red water around him, and it was beginning to grow very quickly. And, you know, to this day, I can't remember how I managed to get the boat back close to him. And, and pulling him up, but I, I do remember vividly, I remember pulling him up by the life jacket and, and what was left of his shorts, uh, pulling him up onto the boat, and when, when I got him onto the boat, uh, there were three lacerations. There was, um, there was one just, uh, just above the, the place where you sit, and it was about uh, four and a half, five inches long, and it was probably two, two inches deep, and then... There was another one that was about eight and a half inches long that went all the way across his buttock, and his hip bone was protruding. And then there was a third one, which was um, probably about as deep, but not quite as long. And um, I don't know if you guys are getting the image that, that I'm trying to paint here, but I'm freaking out, man. I, I'm, I'm sure this cat is dead. I mean, I don't know how he's going to survive with this kind of wound and that kind of blood coming out. And... Uh, Somehow I, I get him to lay face down, and I, I take this little silly tank top thing I had off of me, and I put it down on his wounds, and I'm trying to hold him down. And as we're driving the boat as fast as it'll go through the no-wake zone, right, trying to get back to the marina, he tells me, he had the presence of mind to say, dude, get rid of the beer cans. Right? So so the boat's flying through the no-wake zone, and, and, and there's a stream of silver bullet cans. <laughs> It's just insanity. Um, anyway, I get to the I get to the uh, the dock there, and uh, I, I jump out of the boat. You ever been so drunk you can drive but you can't walk? Okay. I found out that's how drunk I was once I tried to run into the marina to to tell them to call nine one one. I was falling all over myself. I couldn't even stand. And, and uh, an ambulance came and, and picked him up and. Um, and it was at about that time that I saw the ambulance leaving that it occurred to me there was probably another set of lights on its way. And sure enough, the sheriff showed up, and, and they took me, and they put me in jail. And i got to tell you, um, I, I've had some scary moments in my life, but I don't ever, ever, ever want to live that night again. In jail, i got no way to contact anybody. I'm afraid I've just killed my friend, and I don't know what that's going to mean for the rest of my life. I think generally when you're under the influence of alcohol and you cause someone to lose their life, generally you, you, you lose yours as well behind bars. That's what I'm thinking. And um, i got to tell you, with everything in me, I swore I would never, never, ever, ever vote again. <laughs> that was kind of a cheap shot. Um, I swore I was never going to drink again. And um, 
I don't know. Um, I guess I, I interview well, apparently, and um, so I went before the judge. Now, this is the weirdest thing. It was the Labor Day weekend or Memorial Day, right? It's the end of May, first of June thing. So it was Memorial Day weekend, and the judge came in on Sunday. That doesn't happen, right? And the judge could see how upset I was, apparently, and he sentenced me to um, uh, one more night in jail, a $600 fine. Uh, I was to take a boat, boat safety course and to pay my friend's medical expenses. And uh, the next day I was released. My employer didn't even know I missed a day of work. I mean, on a, on a, on a practical scale, I lost nothing. I paid no consequences for what I did. And um, I got home on like a Monday night, and I don't remember if it was Monday night or if it was Tuesday night, but I guarantee you it wasn't more than a day or two, and I was back to my daily drinking routine. See, because in my mind, my drinking had nothing to do with that. It was bad luck. It was a bad decision. I couldn't see the connection at all. That was in 1998, and my sobriety date is um, April 11th of 2005. So I had seven more years of drinking between that event and, and the, the date that I call my sobriety date today. And those were not pretty years. Um, most of the, the damage, most of the collateral damage that I've done has been in relationships and, and how I've uh, won the uh, affections uh, of women and then become convinced that once they find out who I really am, they're going to leave anyway, so I may as well just go ahead and get it over with and give them reason to leave anyway. And, um, you know, I leave, I leave women the, uh, literally no, no choice. Uh, what, what I do uh, is, see, you can't hurt me emotionally because I don't have emotions. You, you can't hurt me um, any other way except financially. That's the only way I allow a woman, that's the only uh, vulnerability that I ever allow my, or allowed myself. And, um, and, and then, you know what, you, you can be sure what you heard from me. Is, can you believe what she did? Man, she owes me. Can you believe she would do like that to me, right? And... Um, The, uh, the life of this drinker continues to get worse, and the consequences continue to get worse. And like I said, I, I had my family show up um, in February of 2004, and, and uh, I went to a, a treatment facility, and uh, while I was there, I could see, I could see that my, uh, my recreational use of methamphetamine uh, needed to probably cease. You guys don't get that, huh? I've never known a recreational methamphetamine user. I could see, I could see how some of the things that I was doing were causing problems in my life, but I did not see how drinking caused, was causing a problem in my life. Um, and uh, so after that treatment facility, I, I came home, and you know, the, you know what they tell you at treatment facilities? They tell you to get a big book. Go to A means get a sponsor, get into service, right? They tell you all these great things to do. And um, when I first uh, when I first came back, I was um, I guess really not that interested in the not drinking part, and um, and I had some some anxiety about you people. Um, 
I was uh, afraid, for example, I suspect some of my friends, some of my friends who didn't even drink, some of those guys who really cared enough about me would take me to AA meetings because they knew I needed to go there. And uh, one of my friends, his parents had been in AA, and he was encouraging me to get a sponsor. He uh, he took me to a meeting in Exeter uh, one night, and, and there was a guy there, and he said, man, ask him, ask him, ask him to be a sponsor. I don't know if you guys have ever had this kind of thought, but, and, and I don't mean any kind of sexual connotation here, right? But I had this idea that if I was going to pick a sponsor, I was going to have to pick them with the same careful precision that I would pick a wife. I would have to pick the perfect one, right, for the rest of my life. And, and if I wasn't careful and I picked the wrong one, I just didn't know what I would do. And, uh, and so I was afraid of picking the wrong guy. And I guess, you know, my friend kind of pushed me, and, and this guy made himself available, and so I asked him, and, and, then, and then he did this just really ridiculous thing. He asked me to, you know, do a little reading and do a little writing, and then he asked me to call him every night. God, you people with your phone lists and... And you know what I would do? I would wait until the, I was waiting until as late as I could in the evening before I'd call him, hoping, because I knew he had to get up early and work the next morning, uh, hoping that he wouldn't spend much time on the phone with me. And it always went longer than I wanted it to. And, uh, you know, that, uh, that was my friend Dan, Danny M. And, and uh, Danny was, uh, was a, a, a tremendous member of uh, Alcoholics Anonymous. He, um, he met with me a couple of times to, to try to help me get through uh, step one, uh, a step that I just, you know, threw a really piss-poor effort at. And um, and you know what I did is I, uh, I was trying to find a way to disqualify Danny. And so uh, what I did was I told him that I was having some problems with some pills. And and, and there was some truth to that. I, I would go to my grandmother's house and find the prescriptions that she had that I liked and I'd help myself to them. And, and Danny didn't really have any experience with that. And so what he did is he, he connected me to a friend named Terry. And I got to talking to Terry, and Terry related to me on a level about those pills that I had never believed was possible. He told me about me through his own experience. And, and Terry would become my sponsor for a, a few months, and and then and then Terry started taking pills again. Um, I still uh, wasn't that uh, terribly ready uh, to change my life, but um, I ended up meeting another guy named Paul. And um, Paul was the first man in Alcoholics Anonymous to take me through all 12 steps. And um, this guy um, taught me a lot of really important things. He taught me that, uh, that you could go to more than one meeting uh, a night. We, we, would go, we would go to this meeting that started at 7 and went to 8, and then we would leave there, drive across town, and go to this other meeting that started at 7.30 and went to 9. So we weren't to the second one. We didn't get there on time, but we got two meetings in two hours, and we got to meet two groups of people, and he taught me that that was possible. And, um, you know, I would call Danny with uh, – I'm sorry, uh, Paul. I would call Paul with these uh, predicaments that I was in, and um, – and, uh, he would say, well, you know, when I had something like that happen to me, this is, this is what I did <laughs> to, to myself, not to him. I would say, well, you know, I could see how you would need to do that. I, on the other hand, am clearly not that desperate, right? And, um, and so you know what I would do is I would insist on continuing to do things my way, 
and they wouldn't work. And then eventually I'd get to this place where I'd say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to go ahead and try what he did, and when it doesn't work, then I know I can just disqualify it, right? And, um, and you know, um, 100% of the time, every single time that I tried what he said he had done that worked, it worked for me. And um, I really didn't want to let go of Paul when he moved out of town. I really wanted to hold on to him as a sponsor. And I, Before I leave that, I want to tell you one other thing that Paul did for me. Um, I was about uh, 90 days sober. And I was at the Alano Club uh, on a Friday night. And, and by study at the Alano Club on a Friday night, it's a different kind of crowd. It's a lot of recovery home people, and there's not a lot of people with recovery there. And so it's kind of a wild, wild west kind of environment, you know. And, and uh, it is, it is. But more so than some of the other meetings that I had been known to frequent. And so um, I was at this meeting one night, and one of the guys from one of the treatment homes uh came up to me after me and asked me if I sponsor him. And I thought, man, I, what, what do I possibly have? That, I mean, dude, my life is a cataclysmic failure. How could I possibly do, have anything that would benefit you? And, uh, and so essentially what I told him was, uh, I'll, I'll talk to my sponsor, but more or less I told him no, right? I mean, that's really what I told him. And, uh, and I'm not sure why, but I did call that sponsor. I called Paul and I told him about what had happened. And he said something that changed my life. Paul said, uh, after he heard me explain what I just explained to you, he said, so let me get this right. Are you saying that you're not willing to do for others what I'm doing for you? Ooh. I'm not the sharpest tool in the shed, but I understood what he was talking about. And, um, and I committed to, to, to never say no to another opportunity to sponsor a man after that. And, um, and i got to tell you, I made a lot of mistakes sponsoring people. Have you ever tried working somebody else's steps harder than they are? <laughs> <laughs> you know, you, 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 might think, you might think somebody would benefit out of that, but... Um, <laughs> You know what it did? You know what it did when I did that is it ended up it ended up pushing the prospect away from the fellowship, and it ended up making me crazy. Mm-hmm. Nobody benefited, uh, and and nobody benefits today when I still lapse sometimes into that kind of behavior. And you know, I don't know. Maybe some of you guys are like me, and you go, "Well, I was just trying, just trying to help the guy." I mean, you know, my intentions are in the right place, you know. And I don't remember if it was Paul or somebody else, but one time somebody told me, they said, you know, intentions really don't matter. Intentions really don't matter. It doesn't matter that I didn't mean to wreck your car. It doesn't mean that I didn't mean to sleep with your wife. It doesn't matter that I didn't mean to get so drunk and sick all over your house. What matters is what I do. And... um after Paul um, moved away, I was so reluctant to let him go, I, but I knew he was far away, and I felt like I needed some supervision. And so um, I started interviewing uh, sponsors, and I, I didn't really find anybody that wanted to take me on. And um, I'm not sure why. And um, so what I did next was um, I went to this group. Uh, it, was, it was a thing. They, they still do it from time to time. It's called Back to the 40s. 
uh, it's, it's a group that, that uses this literature that's uh, purportedly from the 1940s when they would do step work. And, and um, so I went through the steps um, with, uh, with that group, um, and, and that, that kind of seemed to be interesting. Um, and, then, um, and then I found another guy named Kenny. And uh, Kenny, uh, Kenny's a, 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 a great guy. He's a teddy bear of a guy. He's the sweetest guy you ever meet. And he's, he's got a great program of recovery. And, and you know, the funny thing is, is um, I don't see me the way you see me. You know, and, and, and I don't see you the way you see you. See, I see you and I think, man, you guys got it together. And if you're like me, you're probably thinking, man, I didn't do the laundry this week, and, I, you know, I, my breath probably stinks, and, you know. I mean, that, that, that's how I am. I, I'm, I'm hypercritical of me, and, and I'm, I'm overly um, uh, complimentary, I guess, of what I see in you. And, and um, when I asked uh, Kenny if he'd take me through the steps, um, he was a little reluctant, and I didn't really understand why. Now, by this time, I had gone through the steps a couple of times. I'd been around the fellowship a little bit. I, I got in this kick where, um, I mean, I wasn't burdened with uh, employment. So I was, I, was able to, uh, I was able to attend a lot of meetings. And, and um, I remember at one point I was, I, was, I was attending 26 meetings every week. And uh, and there was a guy named Joey that, that I met at the Alana Club, and one day he was at a meeting, and he said he was going to 28 meetings a week. <laughs> and I whipped out the schedule, and I said, you're going to have to show me, because that's not possible. And uh, Joey was doing 28 meetings a week, believe it or not. But, uh, you know, if you go to 26 meetings in a week, you, you're probably, you're probably going to be sober, but you're probably going to be a little crazy, too. And um, and so what I didn't see that, that Kenny saw in me was this really sort of aggressive behavior. Um, and so Kenny uh, was reluctant to sponsor me because cause he didn't really, I don't think he really wanted all of what I was offering in his life to put away. Um, but Kenny is, uh, is so dedicated to his own recovery that, uh, that he told me yes. And, uh, and he took me through the steps, and, um, and I, I love Kenny today. He's a, he's a great man. He's a, uh, he's a big part of the, the fellowship in Visalia, and uh, he's helped a lot of guys. Um, I still use the first three steps, the process for the first three steps that he taught me. I still use that with all the guys that I sponsor. Um, so he's had a profound impact on me. And um, after, uh, after Kenny, I went to work with a guy named Jim. Now, Jim really impressed me because Jim... Had his sponsor was Clancy, you know Clancy I, in the sky, you know Clancy I, and uh, Clancy I think is sober 56 years and he talks everywhere and he's he's, he's a gifted orator. Clancy can speak, man, and um, and so being connected to somebody that was connected to to Clancy seemed well, it was my ego, right? I was I was going after try, I was trying to be Clancy, I guess, and um, Jim guided me through the steps the next time and. Jim taught me some really important things. One of the things that Jim taught me was the, uh, the importance of the amends process. And, um, and Jim really challenged me to get past this idea that, uh, well, you know, this guy that I live, this, okay, the guy with the boating accident, he lives down in San Diego. And so I told Jim, I said, well, when I get down to San Diego, I want to make the amends to him. And Jim said, Jim didn't tell me what to do. You know what he did is he told me what he did. 
And he said, you know what, um, my son was in Detroit, and my son wouldn't take my calls, and he wouldn't, uh, my letters would be returned. And it was so important for me to get free of that that um, I went to Detroit, and I tracked my son down, and I made the amends to him. And it was clear what he was telling me. He was telling me that I don't, I don't get to not make amends because it's not convenient. But if, if I want to get free, I need to make those amends. So I started about on a, uh, a quest to, uh, to find my friend Gavin, the guy that I hit in the boat. And um, by now I'm working with, uh, with, uh, with Rick. Rick's my sponsor now. And Rick's taking me through the steps. And, um, and I'm trying to get a hold of my friend Gavin, and I find him on Facebook. And he accepts my friend request. And so then I mentioned to him, hey, I'm going to be down in San Diego. Uh, I'd love to, to meet with you. And, uh, and that didn't happen. And, um, and then he came down. Uh, he, his family still lives in this, in Vitaleri, area. He came home for like an Easter weekend. And, and I got him on the phone, and he agreed to meet with me on a Saturday. And, um, and on that Saturday, like, a half hour before we were supposed to meet, he called and said, hey, you know what, my plans kind of changed, I'll have to see you another time, and I haven't been able to get be in touch with him since. And um, what Rick has told me that I need to do is I need to remain ready when the opportunity presents itself. And um, I'm working with another guy named Bobby right now. He's the guy that's guiding me through the steps, and Bobby has pointed out to me that um, I need to pay closer attention. I need to pay attention that... that um, First of all, in our literature, it says that, uh, that I don't get to get free at the expense of another. And that my friend does not owe me the opportunity for me to make amends to him. And that when he declines to meet with me, that's a very clear message. And uh, again, he, he enforces what, uh, what I learned before, which is I need to stay ready. And in my car, I have the amends that I wrote out uh, for Gavin. And when I run into him, I'm, I'm prepared and I'm ready to go and make that amends with him. Um, Bobby's also taught me uh, a really important question to ask whenever I'm uh, in a situation where things aren't going so well or the way I think they ought to. And the question that he reminds me to ask myself is, what would a reasonable person do? And, you know, the funny thing is, is when I do get to that place where I'm finally asking that myself that question, what would a reasonable person do in these circumstances, it's usually a lot different than what I've been doing. You know, and so that that question's turned out to be a, a really helpful thing. And uh, I, I got on this uh, I got on this kick. I don't know if you guys can relate to this, but um, I don't I don't really believe that I'm special in this regard, but I act like it sometimes. Um, I don't think I'm the only one sitting here today that has this fear that I don't measure up. My guess is I'm not the only one here today that feels compelled to take measures to try to get you to demonstrate your approval and affection for me. And sometimes that drives me to really absurd and ridiculous behavior. And... Um, one of the things that it's driven me to is um, this, and, and you know, again, it's the intention thing. I, I've gone through the 12 steps, um, 
I guess seven complete times, and I'm, I'm, I'm going through them for the eighth time. Please tell me when I say this. I don't know if you're supposed to do that. I don't know if you're supposed to do it a hundred times. I don't know if you're supposed to do it once. That's not the point here. I'm just trying to share my experience. I, I've been going through the steps, and Bobby is the guy that's taken me through for the eighth time. And when I went to Bobby, I said to him, um, hey, you know, um, I uh, finished the step work with my last sponsor, and, and by the way, his, his approach is you do the steps one time, and then you do the maintenance steps, 10, 11, and 12 is what he calls them. And I listen to a lot of speaker CDs, and I've heard a lot of people that I really, at least I respect what they say, because I don't always meet these people, but I hear a lot of people talk about the practice of staying in the process of, of recovery through the steps continually. And so um, I got this idea that if I could uh, just get, if I could be an expert at the 12 steps, then I would never have to worry about feeling inadequate around you guys because I would know what it is that I'm supposed to do. And, and that's, a ridiculous, that's a ridiculous thing to think. It, it's driven a little bit by some of my experiences, and I, I hope, if you haven't had some of these experiences, but maybe you have. I've been in these. I was, well, I had been keeping myself sober at this time. This was before my present sobriety date. Um, so you know how that worked. Um, I was keeping myself sober for about four and a half months, and I was out of town, and I, I was at a company function, and they had uh, all the free liquor you could drink, right? And uh, they even had my favorite beer. And um, you know what I did is I got a, I got a cab into town to go to an AA meeting. I thought that was, I was impressed. I'm still impressed with the fact that I did that. But, but I got to that AA meeting, and there were probably 200 people there. It was a big meeting. And, um, and I introduced myself as a newcomer and as a visitor, and um, I was the second person in that group that they asked to share. And I don't know about you guys, but when I'm at a meeting, I like to, like, hear what other people are saying to kind of get a feel for the group, you know, to find out what the character is and... I didn't get that opportunity, and so this person next to me uh, speaks for a couple minutes, and then they, they ask me. And so I get up, and I start to explain to them about how the last time I started to drink was behind uh, a decision that I made to take some narcotic pain medication. And there was a person across the room, and again, this was a huge room. A guy across the room stands up. When I uttered the word Vicodin, he stood up and he, he uh, proclaimed to the secretary, would you please ask our visitor to refrain from talking about non-alcohol-related uh, issues? And, um, you know, the reaction that that had for me was, um, it at first, embarrassed me. I, I felt like I had done something wrong. Um, and, and, and then, uh, I, so I said a couple more things and I sat down. And then I started to get angry. I'm thinking, okay, dude, we're going for it in a parking lot, right? <laughs> and, um, and thankfully, by the time the meeting was over, I had gotten off of that high horse, and, and I got back in the cab and went back to the hotel. And, uh, and it would be two days later that I would take uh, my next drink. Understand something. That guy did not take that drink from me. He did not make me take the drink. He didn't encourage me to take the drink. But I'll tell you what he did is he made the uh, Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous look less attractive to me than it had before then. And, and I tell you that because um, I've been in a lot of meetings, 
And I've seen people just as hurt and alone and mixed up as me in an AA meeting, and they identify themselves as alcoholic and something else, or they mention that they may have cheated on their taxes or had sex with a, a man in jail. I don't know. Um, there are lots of, look, we've all got lots of problems. The, the reason this, this AA thing seems to work, from, from what I can tell, is that we spend the majority of our energy and time finding the commonalities that we have, finding the struggles that we have together and finding a way to support each other out of those holes that we dig. And so you're going to struggle to find somebody that's more determined uh, about uh, the primary purpose of Alcoholics Anonymous to, to help the still-suffering alcoholic than, than myself. I really believe... I really believe in that. But you know, the thing is, is I didn't have the perspective that I have now back then. I was, uh, I was about 75 days sober, and um, I was in a job that had me traveling around the country a lot, so I had some frequent flyer miles. And, and I got to go to the Toronto International Convention in 2005. I had 75 days sober, and I got to go to the International Convention in Toronto. And um, it was there... At one of the booths, they handed me a piece of literature that I read about the Washingtonians. And I learned why in AA it's so critically important that we stick to our primary purpose. But see, don't get it mixed up. That's not the same thing. And, um, sorry, I guess I had an X to grind there. Um, <laughs> I was uh, talking about uh, this feeling like I'm not good enough, and I want to finish where I was going with that before I got off on that rant. Um, I didn't ever want to be at an AA meeting again and feel the way I felt that day. And I got this notion that if I could become an expert on the 12 steps, that that would never happen to me again. That, that's nonsense, but that's, what I, that's the way I was acting. And so, so I started going through these steps again and again and again, trying to perfect my, my craft, right? And, and so this guy, Bobby, who's sponsoring me right now, I went up to him and I said, Hey, Bobby, I've been watching you. I think you've got a pretty good program. Like he needs my approval, right? And uh, I said, uh, what do you say? Would you be willing to, to take me through the steps? And he says, uh, well, sure. Uh, what, what problem would you like to address with the, with the 12 steps? And, and I said, well, I mean, we're, we're going to work the steps, right? And he said, well, you know, here's my experience. Um, the steps are designed to help us find a solution to a problem that we can't solve on our own. And so he said, uh, are you having a problem with active alcoholism? Have you, have you been tempted to take a drink or have you drank recently? And I said, well, gosh, no, it's been eight years I haven't had a drink. And, he said, you know, in my experience, it's going to be most fruitful for you to find a problem that you want to apply the steps to. And so um, he gave me an assignment. He said, I want you to go think about what that is. And, and I went away, and this guy is kind of a little bit of a Yoda character. He's one of those guys that, you know, he's all zen, and, you know, he talks in riddles sometimes. And, and so, so I'm kind of thinking... God, I really want to impress this guy. And um, 
So I go away and I come back. I say, hey, I got it. I got it. I got it. I got it. Here's the problem I want to solve. I, uh, I want to learn how to prioritize things better in my life. And he said, um, yeah, I don't think that's it. <laughs> Yoda. And so he sends me away and he gives me some things to think about and and he he ends up actually talking me through he, he helped me find the problem. You know what the problem is? Anybody have a guess what the problem might be? Well yeah, I'm the problem for sure. But 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 if I want to put a name on it it's fear. I let fear drive me. The book, our, our book talks about the ways that fear drives us to insane behavior. And so um, what Bobby's teaching me right now is, um, is about fear and how we can apply the 12 steps to fear. And, you know, the first part of that, I won't go through the whole thing, but the first part of that was he said, um, are you powerless over fear? I said, well, I mean, not really. Not all the time or anything. I mean, once in a while, but not... And you know what I heard myself say? I heard myself eight years ago say, well, I don't really, I'm not powerless over alcohol. I mean, okay, sometimes I overdrink, but it's not really a problem, right? And it's the same, it's the same rationalization, it's the same generalization. You know the truth for me is? I am powerless over fear. I, I can't control what causes it. I can't control when it shows up. I can't really reliably predict how I'm going to react to it. I can't control how long it stays. I mean, I'm powerless over fear. And as a result of my powerlessness over fear, my life is not the way I want it to be, and that's unmanageable. And, uh, and he's teaching on a sixth step right now, and he's teaching me, he's guiding me through the 12-step process, and I'm learning how to apply those 12 steps to fear. Now, that's all well and good. I haven't learned how to live without fear yet. I've learned to live abstinent from alcohol, thank goodness. I think fear is one of those things that we all just have to continue to try to work to improve, right? And, and, and that's why I think it's so critically important for me to be a part of a fellowship. See, I haven't had a drink in almost eight and a half years. You would think drinking is not a problem for me. And if you study our book, the way some people have taught me to study the book, alcohol was never my problem. It was never the problem. So, going to meetings and going to picnics um, is not going to solve my problem. But I will tell you, because I, I know sometimes this gets a little confusing, I am not saying that we don't need meetings and we don't need pictures. <laughs> I thrive on this kind of fellowship. I, I can't tell you how thrilled it is to be invited to come and share a little piece of me with you today and to have people come all the way from my hometown with me. I mean, man, if you had known me eight and a half years ago, you would have bet that ain't going to happen. And um, I... Uh, I'm debating uh, if you guys want to sit in it long enough to hear just a little bit about um, a really significant relationship. Um, um, I, I've been married 
very happily now for four and a half years, and and um, and there's no lack of significance in that relationship. But that's not the relationship I want to tell you about. Um, I, I've, I've never had a relationship like the one I have with my wife. I I was always looking for someone who was going to make me happy, and um, that person doesn't exist. Um, but what I have found is someone who I who I respect, who um, I, I have a lot of things in common with. We, we share a faith. Uh, we share goals, financial goals. We have the same target in mind. Those things are all very important, I've learned, towards having that significant other relationship. But the relationship that I want to tell you just a little bit about today is the one with my father. I, I suspect many of you may be able to relate to this. Um, how I, I look at the... Uh, the father-son relationship, and, and, and probably to the same extent any kind of parent-child relationship, uh, so, so I don't mean to make a gender line here, but, but the, the one that I'm familiar with is the, the father-son relationship. I mean, they wrote about this years ago in the Bible about the struggles that men and their, and their fathers, uh, fathers and sons have. So I'm far from being uh, the only one, but when, when my family showed up for that intervention, I remember feeling like my father was, had betrayed me. I felt like he was a traitor. I couldn't believe that he was trying to bring an end to the one thing that made me happy in life, and that was drinking. And um, for a period of about two years after that intervention, I refused to have contact with my father. Um, that was largely based on a couple of things. One was that I was afraid. My father's a, an imposing guy. He's a, he's a big, big man. And, and in the past, there's been a lot of violence between the two of us. Um, and I was afraid of something like that happening again, and, and I was also afraid of what effect that interacting with him might have on my sobriety. And so for about two years, I stayed away from my father, two years from the intervention. There's a sliding time scale here, right, because I didn't stay sober all that time. But um, by the time I got to my uh, ninth-step uh, amends, um, I knew that if I was going to make that amends, I was going to have to make an appointment with my father and go and do that right now. And um, and that's what I did. I called my dad. I, I hadn't seen my dad in nearly two years. And I said, hey, dad, I'd like to meet with you. And he said, okay. And I said, are you home now? And he said, yeah. And I said, okay, I'll be right there. I'm the pull the bandaid off quick kind of guy, man. And so I, I, I beelined over to my dad's house, and I, I, I had with me what I had prepared in writing with my sponsor. And I sat down, and I stuck to the script, and I told my dad what I knew about my contribution to our relationship at that time. And it, that had changed so much in the, in the, between step one and nine for me. I, I, now, before I got to the ninth step, I had no idea of the things that I was there to now talk to my father about. And, um, you know, my dad did something that day that uh, kind of rocked me. He said, I don't know if you can appreciate this, but he looked at me and he said, well, this is interesting, all this information that you bring me. Um, are you sure you mean this? Yeah, I, I felt like I'd laid myself open and he just twisted the knife, right? But, you know, the thing I forget is that's exactly the place I put him in. I'm responsible for that reaction, not him. And uh, thankfully, my sponsor prepared me adequately. And when, when he asked that question, instead of saying all the nasty, bitter things that I had in my mind, I said, you know what, Dad, I can appreciate why you'd ask that question. And yes, I do mean this. And um, 
I didn't become my dad's best friend uh, that day. Um, I, I, I probably hugged him, but maybe I didn't. I don't remember. And I left his house, and i got to tell you, uh, I expected angels to come out from the behind the clouds playing songs to me. That didn't happen. That didn't happen. But I'll tell you what did happen is I felt about a 20-pound load off of my shoulders. And um, it would be about another three or four months before um, I would make another important step in that relationship. And what happened to me is by the time I get to, got to that point in my, in my sobriety, this question had occurred to me. And the question was, if you had a son, because I don't have my own children, but if you had a son, how would you want that relationship to look? And it became very clear to me that if I had a son and he treated me the way I was treating my father, it would break my heart. And so I knew what I had to do. I knew I had to repair that relationship, and, and I was afraid to do it. I, I, went, to, uh, I went and sought some um, uh, help from a therapist, and, um, and I ended up uh, starting by having lunches with my dad. And I, I, I thought that was safe because it was in a public place, and it, it was in the middle of the day, and it was a, a one-hour thing, right? It was a start and stop, and we're done uh, kind of thing. And so I made that appointment. I... I had lunch with him a couple of times, and, you know, a couple of times he brought up some subjects that I was really uncomfortable about. And I went back to my therapist, and I said, I told her. I said, man, I don't like it when he says this. And she goes, um, okay, try this. Maybe you could, uh, I don't know, change the subject? <laughs> see, I don't see stuff like that, man. And, and I need the help from people who are not emotionally attached to my problems to, to help me get through these things. And you know, every time that something that's uncomfortable between my dad and I comes up, you know what I do? I change the subject. It works amazingly. Every time it works. I, uh, I continue to have lunches with my dad, and at that time it was like once a month or so. And, um, and over a period of time, um, I started to find that I was getting the opportunity to be the kind of son that I would want to have. And, um, and we got invited to my dad's house for, for his birthday, and we, my wife and I uh, invited my dad to, to our wedding, which i got to tell you, at first, I was not going to invite my dad to my wedding. That's how upset I was about him. Uh, but I'm really glad that I did. And, and you know, the, the men in, the, in this fellowship, they said to me, they said, dude, don't miss this opportunity. And these were guys in our fellowship who had lost their fathers. And they said, man, if I could do anything ever again, I would not miss that opportunity. And they, they told me emphatically, dude, do not miss these opportunities. And I um, would have conversations with my dad um, on the phone. And, um, and you know, my, my parents raised me, right, man? Uh, every time when we got done talking to our grandparents, they always told us, tell your grandma you love her, right? Okay. And so that was not taking place in the phone call with my dad. And, and I knew that was what was supposed to be there, and I was afraid. And so with the help of some people, I finally one day said uh, at the end of the conversation, I said, hey, Dad, I love you. And I caught him off guard. And he kind of stammered, and then the phone went dead, right? And then the next time we were on the phone and I said that, he said, I love you too. And then there was the time when he said it first. And you know what? Um, if you would ask me, is that important to me? I would have told you straight face, man, I don't need that. That, that. That's nothing. I don't need none of that. 
And then it happened. And I know how I felt when it happened. And um, here's, a, here's a funny little thing. Uh, it would be about a month, maybe two months later, my dad would have a stroke and he would lose, lose the ability to speak. And what did you guys tell me? You said, don't miss the opportunity. Don't miss the opportunity. My dad's recovering very, quite well from the stroke. He's learning to speak again, but, um, man, I'm so glad that I've listened to you people. I'm so glad that I became desperate enough to take advice and, and quit insisting on doing everything my way. I wish I could tell you that, that I, I live a perfect life and that I always seek God and I seek God through you before I make decisions. And I, I don't, man. I fall short. But I don't fall anywhere near as, fall sh- as short as I used to. My, my life is, is uh, no, there's no connection between the life I live today and the one that I brought here. Um, I, I mentioned that I, I've been married for four and a half years, and, and I, I truly am in a loving relationship. And um, I've been employed now for six years. Um, the last... Uh, Two of the last three years, I've been uh, named the top salesperson for our company. And this year, uh, it seems there's no way anybody could beat me. Um, uh, I, I'm just so far ahead. Uh, so so, so I, I'd like to say three of the last four years, but I haven't actually been awarded the award yet. So, uh, And you know, the thing is, is I've got to be careful not to get this wrong, because you know what? What, the, the, what I do, I'm a salesman. And... and and, and I use the gifts that God has given me. But here's the thing. I can't make someone need what I sell. I depend on powers that are so much greater than I am. The, the fact that I'm successful is a better indication that I'm not screwing it up than anything else. And um, I, um, I, I, I really... Uh, do try hard. I don't always do such a great job of it, but I really do try hard to make the Fellowship of Alcoholics Anonymous attractive to people who are new because I really want people to find what I've found. Um, I don't deserve the life that I have today, but uh, I am so grateful to receive it. And um, I thank you all for being so kind and patient and giving me your attention and laughs and, and all that good stuff. I am... Um, I'm, I'm such a blessed man, and and, um, and I'm just another one of God's kids, just like you guys are. So thank you for letting me share that with you.